0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, a zero emissions fleet is on tap at AB InBev. Why solutions to the climate crisis will come from the multitudes. Mars raises the bar for suppliers, and an exclusive look at Rihanna's environmental justice nonprofit. Yes, that Rihanna, this week on 350. It's April 8th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, always with a song in her heart, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather.
1: Hey, Joel. How are you?
0: I am doing just peachy. Peachy. Uh, beautiful spring here in uh, in the Bay Area. Uh, we actually hit uh, a couple days in the 80s this week, which is uh, hmm. nice, although it's going to go back to the uh, low 60s uh, later on uh, uh, in the weekend or next week. But yeah, just... Uh, a little uh, mild case of spring fever uh, is hitting, hitting here, and uh, I know uh, you can take stuff for that, but what I've been taking is mostly a bunch of hikes up in the uh, Oakland Hills and in the Marin Headlands, um, mm-hmm. and uh, just been out there and enjoying the, the view. I love the so, headlands. Yeah. I used to hike yeah. there
1: a lot when I lived out in the Bay Area, I, whenever I could, used to go up there.
0: Yeah. Well, I know I know you're out and about as well, but you're also head down on <laughs> <laughs> on something that we like to call thirty under thirty. Yes. Uh How's that going? It, uh, when's it? T- when does that come out? Uh, where are we? Yeah. Uh, how's it going?
1: Yeah. Okay. So first of all, shout out to all the alumni that listen to this podcast. We love you. Thank you so much. Um, the thirty under thirty project it is publishing on June thirteenth and. We are, it's an embarrassment of riches. It's one of these things where you have so many submissions, but you have so many really good submissions. It's super hard to pick. Uh, we had about, oh, I don't know, 350 this year, which is pretty extraordinary. And thank you everyone who nominated yourselves or someone else, um, but it's just, it, the bar keeps raising. It's really hard to pick just 30 out of that, that amount. So we're all heads down with it. and. um I uh, excited, though, really super excited. And this list recognizes rising professionals in sustainability, but but it doesn't have to you don't have to be with a corporation. It's nonprofits. It's the whole community. It's the whole ecosystem of people, if you will, that that make sustainability happen and um Exciting, well, super exciting. We'll
0: talk a little bit about the the rising bar. What does mm-hmm. that mean? Um, uh, how is it rising? What does that? What does the latest crop seem to look like? Yeah,
1: you know, it's just the things that these people have accomplished. I mean, really specific uh, projects that they've pulled off, new ideas that they've brought to their corporations, um, nonprofits that they've started, podcasts that they've started. I mean, it's just uh, the the interest and the the accomplishments. Um, it's not just resumes we're getting, which, you know, as this profession matures, the, the people are getting, becoming more engaged. And also the managers, I think are allowing, um, I don't know if that's the right verb, but they're encouraging, um, more action from everyone on their team, you know, not just the veterans, if you will. Um, and I just, you know, I I don't want to give away too many things, partly because we haven't picked the whole list yet, but, um, you know, the other thing I would say is, uh, and this is something that, you know, I know will be addressed later in the uh, segment about Rihanna's foundation um, or about the foundation that she's supporting, which is the whole area of diversity and climate justice and having the right minds in the room. Um, this is a super diverse class already from a racial standpoint, from a geographic standpoint, from an industry standpoint, and also from a gender standpoint. So, Yeah.
0: Well, we've we've done a great job, I think, a pretty good job on on diversity in the past. Mm-hmm. So, and we can always up up, up raise that bar as well. Mm-hmm. So, I'm glad to mm-hmm. see that that's in process. Um, yeah, I'm. Uh, so that's off in in June, June 10th. Uh, before that, thirteenth, I'm, thirteenth, I'm, I'm, so, June thirteenth. Yep. Sorry, 13th, mm-hmm. Monday the thirteenth. Uh, we'll be revealing that to the world. This is about our sixth or seventh year of doing this, I think. S-
1: Seven. yeah wow yeah um yeah
0: uh, I'm I'm excited in, in May for circularity I really uh, I think that's going to be mm-hmm. a great um event in Atlanta uh, and that's just shaping up so interestingly uh in terms of the, the speakers and everything else I hope folks will check that out but I, I want to take uh, this moment uh to uh say adieu to the person who's been who built that conference and has been running it for the past four years Lauren Phipps today mm-hmm. is her last day at uh, at Greenbush. She's going on hey. to uh, to Yale, uh, a little school. I've heard it's up, I think it's in your state somewhere. No, it's in, no, it's Connecticut, in Connecticut. 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 That's right. You're in New Jersey. <laughs> it's all the same to me once you get ah. past uh, Chicago. And uh,
1: Oregon's <laughs> just like California.
0: Exactly. Oh my God! They're cringing in Portland right now when you sit <laughs> to hear you say that. Uh, so, uh, Lauren has uh, you know came in with and. She was uh, actually on the sales team and built uh, the circularity event. Once we decided to launch that as a separate stand, a standalone conference, and really uh, made a name for herself uh, in the field. And I really want to salute Lauren and wish her well in her next adventure. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's not the last we've heard from her, certainly mm-hmm. at GreenBiz, mm-hmm. but 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 also in the larger world of circular economy and and all of that. I think she's. Uh, going to continue to be a force so uh lauren thanks for everything and uh we'll we'll see you uh in your next adventure whatever that is so anyway our next adventure right now is the week in review
1: i'll start us off joel this week with a piece by a uh a contributor one of our regular contributors Phil Rosen um, who writes this week about a b InBev's zero emissions fleet recipe um basically the the Brewers um, what they're doing with their electric electrification of their uh, transportation fleet we've actually written about this before this is a, a bit of an update um, on where things stand and the investments it's making it's it's a uh, something that I didn't realize was how much of the fleet was leased and, and the sort of the things they're doing um to accommodate on that side um the, and, and sort of the challenges that they're having but as far as what they're um, investing in on their own they are adding uh they've added another i think 20 um BYD trucks that they, that's the manufacturer in California so that's basically doubling what they've they've had on the road since since uh 2019 um, per perspective their entire fleet is I think 800 vehicles and I guess we're talking North America that's that's specifically North America if you will um and right now about 15% of them are on you know renewable energy semi-renewable energy and that's not that's not that's the uh, the sort of natural gas and the and the um the other alternatives that have been coming into the into the game as well as some of these early electric trucks and so yeah Phil spoke with the the relatively new chief sustainability officer about what's going on um I have one big takeaway one other takeaway I I'm gonna save it for a moment um, and let you get a word in here <laughs> maybe maybe you can give some more perspective on how much they're handling per year I'm not I'm not spitting out all the statistics that are probably. Really relevant here, but you know what struck you from this piece?
0: Well, first of all, what struck me is 350 million delivery miles a year. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot of uh, drinking and driving. No, that's a lot of beer.
1: 650,000 <laughs> shipments of beer. I know. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a that's yeah. a song you don't want to have to sing. 650,000 beer. Oh, right. Right. So uh, the
1: the contracted amount, um, the, its own trucks are. Uh, Handling about sixty percent of the total product, and contracted carriers are forty percent. So that's you know that's an area where they it's they're going to be slower to influence. So yeah,
0: that's but another but I number. think this is yeah. it's not atypical these days that companies don't own their fleets or own mm-hmm. all of their fleets. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and and so that brings in obviously how do you work with vendors or, or, or leasing companies or often, sometimes these are uh, leasing agents. So there's a uh, several different layers. You're not dealing directly with the manufacturer. You may be three steps between or four between you and the, and, and the actual maker of the vehicle or the person who bought the vehicle from the manufacturer. So this is, this is an interesting, I think, challenge. And, and as you get into the big rigs, I think one of the other things that was interesting is that uh, obviously batteries are heavy and they add significant weight to vehicles. And that means that given the uh, the, the federal laws about uh, vehicle weight on the highway um, to in, in order to not exceed those those weight limits th- they have to carry less beer or mm-hmm. beverages and so mm-hmm. that's interesting so they they they're talking about you know how do they w- they want to see the federal government raise that maximum weight limit for truck containers um, that which they say would allow the company to put fewer trucks on the road while delivering the same amount of beverages so as always this is just this crazy Patchwork and an ecosystem of players. Um, It's not just the technology. It's not just the business practice. It's also the policy piece, and then of course the the market deployment through leasing leasing companies and all of that, just to transform one company's fleet.
1: Yeah, and that was exactly what I was going to bring up with the um, the weight of these vehicles. So I start wondering about things like whether this requires you to change your distribution strategy and have different points of distribution maybe slower like like um shorter distances less weight you know fewer trucks i mean more trucks rather um fewer bigger trucks and how that plays out so i kind of wonder if that weight issue also could play you know could force some more of a distributed um Distribution network,
0: if you will. Yeah. So I mean, it's um, the Amazon model, basically. You've got all these smaller right, vehicles plying right. the neighborhoods and the. And the uh, they, I don't know how many different size vehicles they have. It's probably ten or twelve mm-hmm. uh, that they use, uh, depending on how far it's going and and, and what they're if they're in, in a highway or in a city and they're in a small city or you know neighborhoods. But yeah, that's that is one yeah. one model.
1: Yeah. And the BYD ones are these big. Um, they look like I'm looking at a picture here, Class Eight type trucks, um, or maybe, maybe slightly smaller, but, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's really exciting. And, um, to your point before about the contracting, like who, this is one reason why, um, I've been assigning a lot of stories about the fleet management companies and what they're doing. So, and I think that's going to be really important, uh, area to watch, um, as well for, for our, our listeners, um, because yeah, who you contract with matters.
0: Yeah, and it's yeah, that's another piece of it. It's not just that you're leasing it from somebody uh, that's not your truck, but you are got your brand on it, but someone else is is managing the whole thing, mm-hmm. keeping them, mm-hmm. as a, yeah, again, who, trust your contractors. And that brings us <laughs> to another story here. Uh, and a completely different kind of contractor, C.J. Klaus, our senior writer, uh, wrote a piece uh, about a company called Carbon Collective, uh, co-founded by uh, Zach Stein and James Rogolinski. Uh, it's an online investment advisor aimed at environmentally conscious investors. Um, I mean, I've heard this story before, companies that, you know, uh, particularly young entrepreneurs who want to uh, create something for their cohort uh, to make inv- uh, sustainable investing easier. Uh, This is one where they started hearing from founders of other mission-driven companies, I presume people who had significant chunks of cash, but also were starting, uh, uh, as we have, uh, 401ks at at our company, uh, things for their employees and wanted to... uh, A lot of these are are climate tech or, uh, as you say, mission-driven companies who do not want to be uh, putting 401k money into fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And... um, Boy, this gets into a can of worms uh, uh, around ESG and and how you label things. That's something that I've been working on. But uh, before I get into that, let me kick it to you. What did, what did you get out of this piece?
1: What I, uh, yes. So there's a couple of things. One is um, we know that that this whole idea of having a, a 401k that meets climate needs, um, the climate investment interests of their, you know, the holders is popular, Um but that we know, we also know that the um, Trump administ- administration Labor Department sort of basically said, no, you can't do that. Um, you, you can only use um, fiduciary. You can only consider risk return, not an not- 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 ICS We know that we know that in the United States that this was kind of kiboshed. We know also know that the Biden Labor Department hopes to reverse that rule. Um, I think that's coming in the next few months. So... Um, that's, you know, that's just sort of the background. What I really thought interesting about this particular fund is it, it starts as a passive fund, which is, you know, kind of the, the funds that people are pointing to and saying, hey, maybe maybe not as, you know, ESG-ish as you want. But they're very actively screening out companies that are dependent on long-term use of fossil fuels. Um like, like the russell 3000 index is, is what they base it on then this this particular fund screens those out and then it reinvests that money in climate solution stocks based on um basically solutions that uh, align with project drought Draw- drawdown so like they they go back they t- take these companies out and then they put others in so companies like plug power plower which does um Fuel cells, you know, back to the distribution warehouses, like for all of these electrified equipment and things like that. Oatly, the oat milk company. Zoom actually is in, in, in this one, which is kind of interesting. It's the whole telepresence um, idea. But Xylem is a, is a water technology company. There's others in there you would know, like mm, Tesla. Um, but anyway, they reinvest. So it, it seems more active than the other examples I've seen of this yeah. sort of fund.
0: Yeah, I mean there are and there's some big companies there too. You just mentioned some of the early, the smaller ones, but Johnson Controls, mm, uh, mm-hmm. uh, ABB, mm-hmm. uh, Waste Management, Applied Materials. But so they offer three different investment opportunities. Um, they 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 have a traditional Vanguard retirement portfolio. They have uh, Vanguard's ESG portfolio, and then they have their own core collective portfolio. Cl- excuse me, core climate portfolio, which is what you were describing. And, and what I really like about that is that they're not just relying on things that are marked ESG because that turns out to be not such a good measure. Um, <laughs> I'm working on a piece on this or maybe maybe even more than one piece about what ESG ratings actually mean. And they don't necessarily mean that the company is making an impact in the world or reducing its impact in the world. It just means that they are uh, well-managed and resilient to some of the changes uh, that are happening in the world. But this is much more about investors than it is about impact. And so uh, this is a problem that I don't think is as widely known as it needs to be. In fact, I'll say it's not widely known at all. And I I, I'm going to make it part of my 2022 mission to help uh, elevate and amplify that fact that these funds, and and I've got some money in some of these ESG funds as well. Um, Uh, aren't necessarily what we think they are. The one thing that's missing from this piece, I'll have to say, is there's, uh, I, I don't see anything about returns uh, relative to uh, S&P or, or the Russell in 3000 Index or any of the standard indices. Um, they co-founded this uh, November 2020, so they're a year and a half into this almost. And there's got to be some information, some benchmarks, uh, some returns. So I'd love love to know that for next time. Um, but, you know, uh, hats off to the co-founders of uh, Carbon Collective. And um, I, I'd love to see how this goes. But can, can, this actually segues somewhat nicely into the third piece that I want to bring up, which is from our good friend Jamie Beck-Alexander, who's the director of Drawdown Labs. It's called Solutions to the Climate Crisis Will Come from the Multitudes. And and it, and it sort of brings this to the level of... Um, this, beyond this, you know, the, the, the catchphrase is that every job needs to be a climate job. Well, uh, that's true, but what she's saying here is that we can't just be looking to our leaders, corporate leaders, political leaders, and others to solve these problems. So much of these solutions uh, come from uh, us and uh, uh, farmers, builders, indigenous knowledge holders, engineers, educators, foresters, healthcare workers, and many more, and that these are the people who are going to ultimately bring solutions that already exist to scale. Um, and she talks about the need to bring sustainability education into college and vocational school curricula, uh, and um, and help support the transition of oil and gas. It's a number of things that we can do uh, that don't necessarily need. You know, in the United States, Congress and the President or the Supreme Court, to uh, to, to 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 mandate or uh, d- decide, and so uh, I think it's really interesting. It's very provocative, even though it's sort of high level. Uh, it's a pretty provocative piece.
1: It is provocative, and I really, I just found this very inspiring. I read it and I thought, oh wow, yes, um, because. I think, in, and I think I've struggled with this personally. But you know, often you think I can't do this alone. I can't. It's, I, it's just I can't do this just me. But I, the 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 point of her piece to me, the, the way it spoke to me was that we do have the power, and that you know, basically, we should take the power. Um, that there are a lot of bad decisions being made. Um, we should not be entrusting these decisions to these all powerful policymakers, which, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing. Oh, if they would only do this, if they would only do that. Well, yeah, it would be helpful. But at the same time, um, look at the changes that are happening. I mean, look at the the Amazon workers vote this past week um, that, you know, there's a union now in in Staten. I mean, and who would I think that one was a surprise, too, was um, they were surprised. But I think people are kind of fed up. And this 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 moment the, the, this it speaks to this moment, um, this column as well, because the tools are there, and people need to just kind of not not that there's a lot, not a lot of people trying to do this, but people need to be encouraged to do this, um, you know. And then the other people need to get out of our way, <laughs> you know. Maybe that's part of it. It's just get out of the way, <laughs> um, you know. Like like let's have this, these decisions. They, they shouldn't be bottlenecked with with one individual that's, you know, got the power to yes, yay or no, you know, veto something. Um, so, it you know, it speaks to the sort of employee employee climate activism, the fact that decisions should be made collaboratively rather than just one person. I don't know, I could go on and I probably will if you let me keep talking. So. Well,
0: <laughs> well this is also just one of those cases where where leaders, again, whether they're business leaders or political leaders or others, you know, see a parade and then want to get in front of it. And I don't know mm. how much we're really creating the parade, as opposed to waiting for some leaders to start one so that we can mm-hmm. get behind mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's there's some of both, of course, and I'm sure a lot of listeners uh, to, to to our podcast are saying, "Well, you know, I'm leading here and I'm doing this, and people are following." But you know, this is a bubble, and uh, this is not uh, as big as the rest of the world. And, and there's just a lot of other people who don't know what to do they're paralyzed and I, what i love about jamie's piece is that it sort of says you know we shouldn't be paralyzed there's a lot we can do yeah and uh and ultimately uh it's about not they the leaders but about we the people um or as mm-hmm. i like to say there is no i in sustainability but there is <laughs> yeah four of them i know but that's a that's a detail As you may recall last year we launched greenbiz.org a nonprofit dedicated to nurturing and empowering BIPOC professionals that's black, indigenous and people of color to accelerate a just transition to a clean economy. Jerami Bond is the nonprofit's senior advisor and he recently had the, a conversation with the head of the foundation launched by a world renowned entertainer and he's here to share that with us. Welcome Jerami. Thank you Joel. So what led you to talk to the head of Rihanna's foundation?
2: Yeah, well, it's a part of this journey that I've been on over the past year and a half. Um, I've been talking to foundations, organizations, and experts in the environmental justice arena, uh, really seeking to keep a pulse on the evolving conversation as we work to build out our programs. And I've just been so intrigued by the Clara Lionel Foundation and the fact that its scope extends beyond the U.S. into the Caribbean. Um, We all know that uh, CLF's founder, Rihanna, she is a native Barbadian and global icon. Not only is she the best-selling digital artist of all time, but also a renowned businesswoman and philanthropist. Uh, She started on this journey um, in 2012 when she launched the foundation, and eight years later in 2020, it was actually recognized as one of Fast Company's most innovative nonprofits. Um, So since its advent, CLF has really been at the center of this conversation, shifting how the world responds to inequity and injustice. And so I felt that having a conversation with Executive Director Justine Lucas would give us a really cool sneak peek into their strategic approach as we all collectively seek to dive deeper into this work.
0: Great, well, let's listen in.
2: How are you, Justine?
3: I'm great. Jeremy, thank you so much for having me.
2: Of course, of course. So to kick things off, I'm curious to hear, what does climate justice mean to you in 2022?
3: Well, climate justice really is recognizing that the impacts of climate change do not affect people in the same way. Um, The most marginalized and BIPOC will bear the consequences disproportionately, although they bear little responsibility for climate change in the first place. So Climate justice was really advocating for, you know, the collective rights of groups such as an Indigenous people and people of color. And it embraces a human rights lens and the approach to reducing further climate changes. I mean, the reality is that climate justice means something different to different communities and in different geographies. And Indigenous people have long led efforts to mitigate environmental destruction, to challenge systemic injustices and restore Regenerative relationships with the land and with the water. And so this work isn't new, but how we define it and how we dis- define it as CLF, it, it continues to evolve. And I think it's important that we continue to think about the the definition as we work to get more people to support this notoriously underfunded body of work. Um, and it, it continues to evolve because there's new risks, there's new unjust practices happening in, in the world. And You know, our work is is luckily we get to do such great work in the Caribbean and there's some exciting co-creation happening by movement leaders there to come up with new definitions. So I guess I would say in conclusion that climate justice's definition is is just continuously
2: evolving. So as this work continues to evolve, can you elaborate on CLF's mission, vision and strategic 360 degree approach to addressing climate justice?
3: As you mentioned, uh, the Clara Lynell Foundation was founded in 2012 by Rihanna. Um, She hails from the beautiful island of Barbados and she named the philanthropy after her grandparents, which I think is really special. And our work is focused both on climate resilience and climate justice in the US and the Caribbean. And the climate resilience work falls under a pillar of what we call the Climate Resilience Initiative. And that work is working towards the goal of the Caribbean becoming a climate resilient zone. So for us across the Caribbean in the most marginalized communities, we're hardening and equipping with renewable energy, health clinics, schools, shelters, and communications mechanisms to ensure that communities have the critical facilities necessary to move through disasters. So rather than engaging in emergency response, which is so short-lived, you know, we're we're investing in communities now to ensure that they have the continuous access to services that they will need when they face the natural disasters that will occur in the future. And then the other pillar of the work is climate justice, which, you know, for us, we've always worked on equity issues at CLF, but after the murder of George Floyd in 2020, you know, we had been engaging in a lot of racial justice grant making. And we learned through our partners that climate justice was a priority. We learned through the climate resilience work we were doing in the Caribbean, um, that there's an exciting movement of climate justice organizations happening in the Caribbean. And so we pivoted our strategy as an organization and now climate justice is a a major priority of ours. um, And we're funding directly grassroots leaders and movements.
2: So Justine, over this past decade of work that you just laid out for us, what are some of the challenges faced and lessons learned as CLF continues to build grassroots community partnerships?
3: You know, CLF historically had been engaged in a lot of emergency response to natural disasters, and natural disasters happening all over the world. And you know, through that journey of of responding, we really learned, and it's something that I you know has been a reality in my career for a long time, that that emergency response work is is really just a bandaid. You know it it is important to you know support right in the aftermath of a natural disaster, but oftentimes that support doesn't reach the communities that need it most. The media stops covering the disaster. Everyone kind of walks away and those communities are left to pick up the pieces themselves and and for us especially after the 2017 Mm. uh hurricanes in the Caribbean um hurricanes Irma and Maria we were spending time on the islands and just meeting folks that were you know still year on year um, after the disaster still you know putting their health clinics back together and still you know helping still struggling to get communities access to these services and we had this pivotal moment in Puerto Rico where we were reproductive health clinic and just hearing the stories of these women who had been trying to get the clinic back up and running for years and their struggle and the fact that that community didn't have access to those services it was it was really the realization that we needed to be investing in climate resilience and we needed to be doing it now so that these communities can withstand the natural disasters to come so that learning learning from the challenges faced by these communities Um, You know, it really helped inform our strategy for for how we do the work.
2: So, Justine, I learned that recently in January, in fact, CLF committed 15 million dollars to 18 organizations across the U.S. and Caribbean focused on climate justice. Can you share a few stories around how partnering with your grantees has scaled positive impact?
3: Absolutely. We were really proud of this grant round. Um, I mean, the grants supported entities that were focused on and led by women, youth, um, BIPOC, LGBTQIA communities. And, you know, we were able with this grant giving to reach supporting leaders and organizers in seven Caribbean countries and nearly all 50 U.S. states. Um, just amazing climate justice activists. And there were 18 organizations that were part of the grant round. And just to lift up a few, uh, one that I really love is Girls Care. It's a feminist climate activist movement in Jamaica. And they aim to create a space that empowers young women to advocate for gender justice in climate action and really safeguard the economic, social, and environmental rights of women in adaptation and resilience building efforts. Across Jamaica. So, really love them and their work. And another organization that we were able to support was the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. So, this is an organization here in the US, in the South, um, that monitors environmental hazards in neighborhoods and develops strategic advocacy for policies and decisions that prevent and remedy unsafe environmental conditions. So, a powerful org here in the US South. and. Then, one that's more global that I'll highlight is the Black Feminist Fund. Um, and, and the Black Feminist Fund is led by leaders across Africa and the Caribbean. And really, their goal is to significantly increase the resources available to Black feminist movements around the world. So, three very different organizations, um, again, US and Caribbean. And we're really, really proud to support them all.
2: Thank you so much for sharing those stories. Um, now, as we get ready to wrap up, I'm curious to hear. Um, as CLF continues to lead um, in the climate justice space. um, In your opinion, what posture must corporations, nonprofits, and foundations take to, in a similar way, accelerate impact?
3: Well, given the fact that under-resourced countries, communities of color, island nations are facing the brunt of the effects of climate change, I think there's two things um, that should be prioritized. First of all, I wanna emphasize the need for philanthropic investment into climate resilience now. There's so much discussion in the space on adaptation and resilience, but there's still very little funding going into projects. So I think that's an important priority for funders. And second, I would say that funders must build partnerships with grassroots organizations, really acknowledging their deep understanding of what's necessary to achieve climate justice in their own communities. We need to fund locally and lift up the work of these powerful activists and
2: movements. Thanks so much for sharing that. This is incredible, Justine. Uh, You have painted an insightful picture for us, bringing us into your work, your learnings, and sharing a few examples of how a holistic approach can cultivate lasting solutions on a community level. Justine Lucas is executive director at the Clara Lionel Foundation. You can learn more at claralionelfoundation.org. Thank you so much, Justine.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Over the past 12 months, a small but growing number of multinational companies has moved to make addressing scope three emissions part of their net zero strategies. One of those stepping out forward with that sort of commitment is Mars, which last October disclosed a science-based climate target to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions across its full value chain by 2050, including all scope three emissions from agricultural activity and suppliers. The pledge covers all of its brands, including Ben's Originals, M&Ms, and Royal Canaan or Canaan, as you will. Joining me to chat about the challenge is Kevin Rabinovich, Global Vice President of Sustainability and Chief Climate Officer at Mars. Hey, Kevin, how are you?
4: Great. How are you doing, Heather?
1: Great. And it's wonderful to talk to you again. Um, It's been a while. It's been actually not that long because we saw each other cop, but uh, it's really wonderful to catch up again.
4: Yeah, terrific. Happy to be with you.
1: So I'm uh, intrigued by Scope 3 this year. This is one of my big themes, and um, it's clear that supply chain transformation will be critical to deliver against net zero um, we, we've all been saying this you're working toward it so how is mars engaging and empowering suppliers to take climate action and set science-based targets because that is part of what you what you've set out for them
4: yeah absolutely and, and it, it's great that you're intrigued by scope three we should we should all be intrigued by scope three because if we are just focused on scope one and two which is in our direct control we're we're not going to solve the problems we need to solve um, and, and really that's the reason that that since the very beginning of our, our program and thinking about climate targets way back in 2009, we've been thinking about and working towards having scope three targets were aligned with science. Um, for us, that is uh, about 95% of our entire footprint is in scope three, only 5% is in our direct operations thanks to the work we've done over the years. And and realizing that most of those come from upstream, so the inputs to, to our business, um, you know, we knew that we weren't going to achieve our objectives without uh, engaging our suppliers. And, and you know, we began with um, launching at, uh, at Climate Week in 2019, Pledge for Planet, where we called on our suppliers to set science-based targets or, or renewable energy targets. And, and we realized that just calling on our suppliers to set targets wasn't enough and, and wasn't even all that we could do. Uh, and so we realized that the expertise we'd built up in working in this area over the years could help our suppliers develop and and set those targets. So we created something called uh, the Supplier Leadership on Climate Transition with a a number of our peers, including Pepsi and McCormick. Uh, And and what that is, is essentially a a consulting boot camp for suppliers to to go through the process of doing a GHG inventory, understanding, you know, what drives your emissions, and then thinking about how to set targets. And, And we're hoping and we believe that 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 catalyst will be what helps our suppliers not just get an ask from us as a customer, but actually get some real help and support from us as a customer in, in driving towards a, a net zero future.
1: So let's parse this a little bit. So uh, you've, you've agreed to do this with your suppliers and you have been engaging with them for a while. So what's the, the response been, the, the sort of feedback? How, how, are you dealing primarily with larger folks at this time? Um, or you know wh- wh- what's the uptick been?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So so you know we started out with three companies on the asking side, and that has now grown. Um, and we started out by engaging our our largest suppliers, and we've also started to expand out the, the invitation there. But but at this point, you know, we've got um, more than a hundred uh, suppliers that have engaged in the process and are working their way through. It's a it's a five month course essentially that, uh, that that people go through, and so yeah, we've had a a large number of suppliers across, you know, the various companies that are asking about this. And they they really run the gamut from from agricultural suppliers to packaging suppliers to logistics companies, uh, and, and so really a wide range of, of suppliers. And and we have every intention of continuing to widen that out and broaden the invitation. And you know, the, the more the better.
1: So this is an invitation now to do it. Is at what point does it become a mandatory sort of activity?
4: Well, we've made it very clear to, to suppliers that this is, uh, this is where we want our business to go. And this is what we're expecting of our supply chain in the future. And so mm-hmm. therefore, suppliers that are on this journey with us are, are the sort of suppliers that we want to work with more in the future. Um, and, you know, I think in the end, performance is really what matters. So, you know, what we're going to be focused on are, are the suppliers that are doing the things to drive down the emissions that they can control in their business and upstream of them. Um, and, and increasingly, we will, we will reward or, or value that um, as an important factor in, in purchasing. We already do in a number of areas, uh, you know, particularly deforestation. You know, we have reorganized parts of our supply chain to you know, achieve and deliver zero deforestation objectives. And, and one of the significant impacts of deforestation, certainly not the only, but one is greenhouse gas emissions. So managing deforestation out of your supply chain is an incredibly effective way of managing your greenhouse gas footprint.
1: So I want to dig into deforestation a little bit more in a moment. But I, before we do that, I want to ask about the partners that you pulled into this engagement strategy. What? Why? I mean, this is, is this sort of a pre-competitive collaboration. I mean, that we, we, we do hear a lot of talk about pre-competitive collaboration, industry efforts to engage at the supply chain level. Why is that important, and what are you hoping to achieve with the the program you described?
4: yeah, I think there's there's a couple of reasons for it. so So one is um, you know in the food industry, for example, or, or really probably in any industry, you know, almost every manufacturer shares suppliers with their competitors, right? So you know the same agricultural traders that supply us supply Pepsi and and some of these other companies and And so you know, in that sense, it, it's more efficient and more effective for both of us to be asking our shared supplier the same thing, right? If they have one Mars ask and one Pepsi ask and a different ask and a different, right? You know, ultimately their ability to do what we want is going to be diminished and diluted because of slightly different, different requests and, and asks. So that's a, in a way, that's almost sort of a tactical answer to the question. But the, the more strategic answer to the question is, we're trying to do our part and tackle a global problem and challenge here. And so there's there's sort of no level of adoption that is too high for for working on a net zero and science-based targets, And so anything we can do that that pushes more um, suppliers or more companies down this path is good sort of in the broader sense. And then again, sort of in a narrow sense, good for us because we are increasingly being exposed to the risks and the impacts of climate change. Um, you know, and you can you can modify your supply chain to be net zero and cut your emissions radically. But if the rest of the world doesn't, you're still going to be experiencing the impacts of climate change. Um, and so that risk management strategy really drives us to do as much as we can, as broadly as we can.
1: Deforestation <laughs> uh, have been some very depressing numbers out this year. I know that is a very big focus for your organization. So can you share an update? Uh, on how you're tackling this challenge and um, how you're dealing with land use in, in the sourcing of your ingredients?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we continue to be to be very proud of the, the work we've done in our Palm Positive plan, um, you know, where we, we've eliminated deforestation from, from our supply chains. And, and that really came from a rethinking of how our supply chain was structured. Uh, so we didn't take a supply chain we had and solve for deforestation in it, we realized that the widely distributed supply chain that we had was not going to be possible to solve for deforestation. So we redesigned a more consolidated supply chain with fewer suppliers where we could more deeply engage and choose the ones who were doing the best. And that's really what's enabled us to to make the progress that we have in in Palm. That won't necessarily be the the answer in every supply chain, but, but I think the idea of the supply chain structure you operate today may not be the right one to solve for deforestation is a, is a really key insight for us. And we're we're thinking that through in, in other materials. In, in COCO, we continue to make great progress with our responsible COCO program of, of mapping farms and, and verifying that we don't have deforestation and, and that will be complete by 2025. And then beyond, again, sort of coming back to the, the supplier leadership on climate transition example, beyond our own supply chain, we continue to, to push forward and drive the CGF forest positive coalition where we're again working with many of those same peers. And and the theory of change there is really about pushing companies like us to to talk to our suppliers, not just about the volume of material they sell to us, but the volume of material they sell to anyone and judging them as a supplier on the entirety of their business, which is is a really profound pivot in in how to think about supplier management and, and drives a very different set of incentives and behaviors than doing it as a sort of market share uh, approach.
1: Yeah, CGF being the Consumer Goods Forum. Consumer form. Goods Forum. Yep, awesome. So this is one of the areas, uh, the next question I have is is uh, could be different for a public company versus a private company, but um, I'm, profit means something to every company. So every company that's structured that way. So how do Mars leaders ensure that these ambitious uh, decarbonization plans, this net zero plans, are balanced with the profit ob- objectives of the company. How how do you find the balance?
4: Yeah, I mean, a couple of answers off for of that. I mean, maybe the first one I'll start with is, um, you know, several years ago, our our board approved what we call the Mars Compass, um, which is something that you can read about online. If you Google Mars Compass, you'll you'll find it on our uh, on our website. If if you don't end up looking at something about the Mars rover first. Um, and, and what the compass is, is a, it's a four-quadrant model that, that says where the board and our owners basically said, this is, this is the objective of the business. Um, and, and one of the quadrants is the typical strong financial performance. So shareholder return, you know, earnings, profits, that kind of stuff. There's another one, which is about the quality of net growth, which is really a measure of, are we growing in ways and in places that will, in the future, continue to deliver the strong financial performance that we saw you know, in the last 12 months or whatever? And then we get to the bottom of the compass where we have non-financial metrics. So we have trusted partner, which is about how society views us and our relationship with all of our stakeholders, told through the voices of those stakeholders. And then we have what we call positive societal impact, where we've got the numerical, um, you know, impact data about uh, people and and planet, uh, where we're measuring things like greenhouse gases and 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 what we have our objectives all the way around the compass, and that's how. The board judges management and and there's a real belief that if you're only looking at strong financial performance in a backward lens, and even if you're doing that and looking at quality growth in the future, you 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 may miss something. And, and they'll, you know, you can be, you can be sort of, you know, flawed below the the line, as it were, and and you'll get yourself into trouble over the future. So we, we really think this is the right way to deliver sustained business performance. The other thing I'll point out is, you know, we, we are still competing in the marketplace on store shelves we are competing for labor and, and talent and so you know we we still have to deliver short-term financial results and performance um, you know but we need to do it in a way that sets us up to sustain and continue to deliver that performance in the long term as well
1: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that that also applies to the sort of short-term versus long-term view right that we hear about from a lot of companies they they you go to a public company's earnings call, and it's all about the quarter. And, um, you know, many of our climate plans are very long term in in nature, although there are short term milestones, um, at least in the good plans. Um, Exactly. So (laughs) how do you balance that?
4: I mean, I think that's the that's the role. That's our role as as managers of business. Um, You know, so so people people talk a lot about, you know, publicly listed companies and, and the quarterly earnings pressure. But those same public listed companies build factories, right? And, and building a factory this quarter is a terrible decision from a financial point of view, right? It's money out the door, probably for three or four quarters while you're building it and nothing comes back in. But everyone's okay with it because you know that capacity is then going to produce goods you're going to sell for the next 20 years. And so people will grumble about it, but they're okay with it, right? And, and so I think we just need to recognize that these are not... Costs, but investments, um, like building a factory, uh, where where you need to make those investments now to set yourself up for performance in the future.
1: One last question for you: Do you think being a private company gives you uh, any kind of advantage <laughs> in 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 this in this journey? Um, you know, how does being a private company help with what you're trying to achieve, uh, or and maybe how does it hurt?
4: Yeah, I think I think having a um having a small group of highly engaged owners is what makes the difference. Um, so, so we have the opportunity with with the Mars family, you know as, as our owners to have incredibly deep detailed conversations about what our sustainability strategy is and why and, and really be able to understand some of the nuance that maybe you just can't capture in in one metric that that you know an, an analyst, you know, at, at a bank has has produced, and and I think that gives us the ability to to make better, smarter decisions because we can have better, smarter conversations. And so I think, you know, again, as someone who's only ever worked at a, at a private company here at Mars, you know, I think that might be the the opportunity we have that sometimes those publicly listed companies don't have is the ability to have that really sort of deep, nuanced conversation with with their owners about why some of these investment strategies are the right thing to do.
1: Great. Well, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it.
4: Yeah. Yeah, great uh, great to see you. Maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll see you at the next COP.
1: <laughs> you just heard from Kevin Ravinovich, Global Vice President of Sustainability and Chief Climate Officer at Mars.
0: And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com/350 to find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned. While you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletters. There's seven of them, and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com/newsletters to sign up. We love to hear from you. Your questions, your comments, your tips. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. And Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time.